Can you hear me in the back? All right, let's pray. Lord, we rejoice to pray to you, and we've done that. And we rejoice to sing to you, and we've done that. And now, Lord, we want to hear from you through your word. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would prepare each one here, that you would open everyone's hearts and minds to hear the word that they need to hear this morning. You're our king. We love you and we praise you. And we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Good morning, everybody. Happy Palm Sunday. If you're new to Open Table Church, we're glad you're here. And if you're just hanging out in the park, you're welcome to join us. For those who may not be familiar with the term Palm Sunday, it's the name traditionally given to the uh, beginning of Holy Week, the last week of Jesus' life, which includes his crucifixion on a Roman cross on Friday and his death and then his resurrection from death on Easter Sunday, which we'll celebrate next week. When Wayne asked me to talk today, I was delighted because it was on Palm Sunday, 1984, that I came to faith in Jesus Christ. For, for, so for me, in the, for the last 36 years, this has been a kind of a special day. Now, each of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, present the events of the last week of Jesus' life in slightly different ways. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are pretty similar. John's a little different. Today we're going to talk about the first couple days of, of Holy Week, primarily from the perspective of the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark, in order to see what we can learn about Jesus and also about ourselves. First, though, in order to set up the context for what I'm going to read, let me remind you that Jesus has been engaging in his public ministry at this point for three years. If you've already read the Gospels, then there's a few things you already know about Jesus before we get to this point in the story. Perhaps most importantly, you know that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God who's who has come to restore his people Israel, but also to restore the whole world to the state of goodness, justice, and love that God originally intended for his creation. You know that Jesus has been traveling around Israel, proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. You know he's been demonstrating the presence of God's kingdom through healing people that are sick, casting out demons, commanding the wind and the waves, and many other signs that point to the presence of God's kingdom. And you know that Jesus has been very secretive about what he's been doing. He often speaks in cryptic language, telling parables and stories that people don't understand unless they ask him about the meeting. He tells people that he's healed, don't say anything about it. He won't let the demons reveal who he is, even though they know who he is. And so, even though we as readers know who Jesus is, because the narrator of the story has told us, the actual characters in the story, in Jesus' life, they don't know who he is. And a major question in the, in the first half of the gospel is, who is this? 
Why has he been hiding his identity and telling people to be quiet about the things he does? Well, it's because as Jesus continues his ministry, more and more people follow him. The crowds are getting larger and larger. And with this huge following, the leaders of Israel are becoming more and more fearful and hostile towards Jesus, fearing that his movement may put their own power and positions at risk by attracting the attention of the Roman military that rules Israel and possibly attracting Roman military action. So Jesus has to be very careful about how he does things. I also want to remind you of something that may seem kind of strange. But the fact is, for three years throughout his ministry, Jesus has walked everywhere he goes. Of course, occasionally, you know, he'll take a boat across the sea, although sometimes he even walks on the water. But he's walked 80 miles from the city of Capernaum in the north of Israel down to Jerusalem, where our text takes place. And as I read, and you can see it in your bulletin, you'll see why what happens next is quite a contrast to what's taken place in Jesus' ministry before. So Jesus has been walking with his disciples and the various crowds on his way to Jerusalem, and that's what we'll start reading in your bulletin, Matthew chapter 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with a colt beside her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, Zion means Israel. See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. Now let's consider a couple of the contrasts between Jesus' actions now and what has occurred in the prior three years of his ministry. After walking everywhere he goes for three years, after walking 80 miles from Capernaum to Jerusalem, for the last two miles, he rides on the colt of a donkey. Why? Well, Jesus knows exactly what, why he's doing this. Matthew tells us that, by, that he's publicly enacting the fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah. So not only is he writing this last bit into Jerusalem, but he's publicly, openly proclaiming that he is the king. He's the Messiah. And as the story continues, he'll become more and more open about who he is. And as Mark tells us in just a few verses, the chief priests and the teachers of the law respond to Jesus openly revealing his identity by looking for a way to kill him. Now let's consider what this first part of our text might mean for us today. Jesus has told two of his disciples to go to a village, get the colt, 
bring it back. He gets it, gives instructions about what to do if people ask. They, and they do what he says and bring the colt to Jesus. What does this tell us about Jesus as a man and as, and as a king? Well, it tells us that Jesus is absolutely in charge of what's going to happen throughout the next week. We aren't told if he's planned this out in advance with these villagers or if this is like a miraculous event, and it doesn't matter. The main point is that Jesus is in charge. We don't have time today to consider everything that's going to happen in the chapters that follow as Jesus is confronted by the leaders of all the different Jewish groups in the temple, the chief priests and the various teachers of the law, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they all try to test him and trick him in public so that the crowds will desert him and they can finally arrest him and kill him. But they can't do it. Jesus will be arrested and killed, but he's the one in control of when it happens. And you, as you can see on your bulletin, our first takeaway is that Jesus is the king who is always in control. And that's an important thing to remember because it's not uncommon for us to feel like our lives are out of control in so many different kinds of ways. Yet when we belong to Jesus... We know that even if things are chaotic and even frightening, Jesus is our king, and he's always in control. All right, back to the text. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now notice that the crowds clearly understand what Jesus is doing. I mean, they've read the, their Bible, right? They understand that he's publicly proclaiming that he is the king. He's the Messiah. As he begins to ride the colt up towards Jerusalem, they're covering the ground in front of him with their cloaks and with the branches of trees. They're doing what we might describe as rolling out the red carpet for the king. And the crowds are shouting out these phrases. Hosanna to the son of something like hallelujah or praise the Lord. Now, even though the crowds understand that Jesus is making this prophetic proclamation that he's the king, they expect him to be a king like David, a warrior who's going to raise up an army and drive the Romans out of Israel. But that's not what Jesus has planned. He's definitely not a typical king. Normally, when kings come riding into capital cities to conquer them, they do, they're mounted on great war horses and surrounded by their armies. But Jesus has not come to conquer Jerusalem through military force or or coercion. No, he's told, as he's told his disciples three times on the way to Jerusalem, he's come to be rejected, to suffer, to die, and on the third day to be raised. He has come riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey as a conqueror, but Jesus has come to conquer sin, death, 
and the evil supernatural forces that make this world sometimes so awful and painful to live in. As he said in the text right before the one we're reading, he's come riding in Jerusalem not to be served like a regular king, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so as our second takeaway, we have to remember that we often may not understand exactly what or why Jesus is doing something in any particular situation. Jesus is a king, as you can see written out, who does the unexpected. How many times have you experienced this as a disciple of Jesus? I remember getting a phone call on an, uh, October 19th from Thailand, 1992, the day before we were going to get on a plane and fly to Bangkok on our way to living in Laos. We'd been preparing for more than a year. We'd left our jobs. We'd left the home that we lived in. We spent six weeks that summer at the University of Washington in a, in a Lao language school. We traveled up and down the West Coast, raising financial and prayer support. We were part of a team of three families that was going to live and minister in southern Laos. We had our plane tickets for October 20th. But on October 19th, we got the call and found out that our country manager in Laos had been arrested and given 24 hours to leave the country. So everything was in chaos. When we got to Thailand, we weren't able to get visas to get into Laos. And when we finally did get visas, six weeks later, the team that we had put together so carefully had completely fallen apart. And yet, Jesus provided us with an Australian couple who had two boys the same age as our boys. And in January of 1993, we took our first drive down to the place in southern Laos where we would live and minister. Jesus was in control of the whole situation. And he did things in very unexpected ways. I'm sure many of you have stories like that. Let's go back to the text, but this time, as we continue, we're going to look at it from the perspective of Mark's gospel, looking at the same events. This is Mark 11, chapter 11, uh, verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, the third takeaway is in the wrong place, so don't worry about that. I'll tell you when it. 
the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. To understand the meaning of Jesus' cursing of the fig tree and his actions in the temple court, we have to appreciate the importance of the temple in Jewish life at that time. And we have to know something about the layout of the temple. So let me do that real quick. The temple was the center of, Je of uh, Jewish life and considered by the Jews the most holy, the most important place on earth. It was the place where the actual presence of God was manifest on earth. There was only one temple, and it was a magnificent piece of architecture. About 20 years before Jesus was born, Herod the Great began refurbishing and, and enlarging the temple, a project that took 46 years to complete. Now, both Israelites and Gentiles could go into the temple to come close to the presence of God to worship and praise God through offerings, animal sacrifices, and other rituals, and to pray for God's blessing. Roughly speaking, the temple was divided into four areas that became progressively more holy and progressively more restricted the closer you came to the very center, a cube-shaped room called the Holy of Holies. But starting from the outside of the temple, you'd enter into the outer court, which was called the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles, men who were not circumcised and not converts to Judaism, or women who were, not, who were Gentiles and not converts to Judaism, could enter into the court of Gentiles to worship and pray to the God of Israel. And many did. However, they could go no farther than that upon pain of death. Jewish men and women could enter farther into the court of the Israelites, which is more holy than the court of the Gentiles because they were closer to the holy of holies. The next court was called the holy place, and this is where animal sacrifices and other rituals were done to worship God, and only Jewish men who were priests, when it was time for their division to offer the various kinds of sacrifices, could enter there. And then next, as I've already mentioned, was the Holy of Holies, the place where the Jews believed that the actual presence of God was manifest on earth. It was a room built in the shape of a cube, and only the high priest, one day a year on the Day of Atonement, could enter to offer sacrifice for Israel. The front of the Holy of Holies was covered by a curtain four inches thick. Now let's return to the events of Jesus in the temple. What's the big deal with the, the fig tree? And why do the gospel writers tell us about it? Well, the fig tree is a symbol for the temple. Now there were two kinds of fig trees when Jesus was living in that area. And Jesus had been eating these figs all of his life. He knew exactly what they were. Mark makes it clear 
for all readers, that's not even the season for figs. Jesus knew that. But the fig tree had lots of leaves. It looked really good. And that was the symbol for the temple. It was, as I said before, the temple, a magnificent piece of architecture. However, it was completely failing in its purpose in God's plan. In other words, it wasn't bearing any fruit. One example of the way of, in which the temple was failing its purpose has to do with where the selling of animals and the money changers was taking place. Jesus wasn't upset that people were buying animals, not just doves, but sheep and goats and cattle as well. And he's not upset about the currency changers. After all, people traveled long distances to worship in the temple through sacrificing animals, and it's extremely difficult to bring your cattle and sheep if you're coming from Galilee or Alexandria in Egypt or Rome. So instead, you'd bring coins. But there were all different kinds of currency in the Roman Empire. And so you had to have the money changers there to change the currency into the what's called the Tyrian shekel to pay the annual temple tax. The problem is, is that the chief priests and teachers of the law have authorized the animals and the, to be sold and the currencies to be changed in the court of the Gentiles. So with the stalls of different animals squawking and snorting and the tables of people bargaining to get the best rates with the currency changers, it would be impossible for any Gentile to use the area for prayer and serious devotion to God. I mean, imagine if there was a, a, a bazaar going on right behind us, you know, with people selling stuff and shouting and music playing. Could we seriously pay attention to God? And that's why Jesus comes in and disrupts all this commercial activity going into the court of Gentiles, and he's teaching, is it not written, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations, the Gentiles. But you've made it a den of robbers. Now, Jesus is quoting there from Isaiah and Jeremiah. The leaders of Israel have completely forgotten or are ignoring that the whole purpose of Israel is to be a light to the nations. And the temple is a house of prayer for all nations. In other words, God loves the Gentiles just as much as he loves Israel. Now, what can we learn from these events about Jesus and what might it mean for us? I want us to consider what we can say about what kind of a man Jesus is and therefore what kind of king based on what we've read, but also on our general reading of the Bible. I think we can say that Jesus is a man who is absolutely competent and at the same time completely humble. Now, we know when we think of people who are extremely confident, oftentimes they can be very arrogant. And when we think of people who are very humble, oftentimes they might actually be kind of weak and insecure. But Jesus is a man and a king who combines absolute confidence with absolute humility. Because of his absolute confidence, I'm going to describe him as a confrontational king. He knows 
that the leaders of Israel want to kill him. But he goes into the most important, most holy place in the world and by himself disrupts completely what's going on and openly criticizes the temple for using, by using the words of Isaiah and, and Jeremiah. But let's give a prior example from earlier in Jesus' ministry of his confrontational manner. Back in chapter 8 of Mark, Mark writes, Then Jesus called his disciples in the crowd to him and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. I'm missing a page here. No. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the angels. So what does it mean for us that Jesus has absolute confidence to be the confrontational king? Well, it means there's only two possible responses to Jesus. The first response is to give your life to him, putting him first. He is the king and acknowledging that in your life and doing your best to obey everything he teaches you to to do. And when you do that, He gives you a new life. But the second response is to kill him, or in our case, to reject him. What's not an option is to like Jesus. Picking and choosing which of his teaching and commands that you're comfortable with. He will not allow that. He is the confrontational king. But what does it mean for us that Jesus is the absolutely humble king? Remember that for us, oftentimes we think of people who are humble as being weak or insecure. But look at what Jesus says in Matthew's gospel in chapter 11. All things have been committed to me by my father. And then he goes on and he says, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In this text, again, we see Jesus with absolute confidence. All things have been committed to me by my Father. And yet, in the next verse, he's saying, I, the ultimate king, I'm the one who will take care of you. I will give you what you need when you need it. I'll give you rest for your souls. Now, he's not saying that we're not going to have problems. He promises that we will. But he'll give us what we need when we need it. So our third takeaway, and I know it's in the wrong place on your bulletin, but Jesus is the confident, humble, and confrontational king. Now we're going to jump ahead in the story to Mark 13, verses 1 and 2. 
As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you, uh, Jesus responded, Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus has indicated through his prophetic demonstration with the fig tree and his actions in the temple, the temple is useless with regard to God's purposes. And now he tells his disciples that because the temple is fruitless and its leaders refuse to accept the Messiah, it will be destroyed. And in 70 AD, Titus, the Roman general Titus and his armies marched in, destroyed Israel, and completely, literally tore the temple down. Not one stone was left on another. But Jesus told his followers that a new temple would be raised. In Mark 14, after Jesus is arrested, at the time he determined, the chief priests are looking for a legitimate charge to convict him so they can kill him. And they can't find anything. But some people say, in Mark 14, 58, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days build another not made with hands. But what Jesus had actually said, we see in John's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 19 and 21. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. But the temple he was talking about was his body. All right. We're going to go forward again. Mark 15, Jesus has been arrested, condemned to death false, for false charges, and crucified. And as he's hanging there on the cross, Mark tells us, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until 3 in the afternoon. At 3 in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Notice that as Jesus cries out from Psalm 22, my God, my God, and then breathes his last and dies, Mark tells us that that four-inch curtain that, that, that was the front of the Holy of Holies is torn from two from top to bottom. What this means, what, what, he, what is, he's saying is that God's presence is no longer found in the temple. Rather, the presence of God is found on the cross. The crucified king is the new temple. This new temple is available to all nations. And the fact that the Roman centurion standing there in front of Jesus saw how he died and, and says, surely this man of the Son of God confirms this incredible new reality. Mark is guiding us to see this truth because this Gentile who actually participated in killing Jesus is the only human character in the Gospel of Mark. 
who addresses Jesus as son of God. He sees. So our last takeaway is that Jesus is the king who dies to create the new temple. And what does that mean for us? Well, maybe the easiest way to make it clear is uh, what it means is to quote the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the churches in Corinth. In chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred. And you, together, are God's temple. Paul's words and Jesus' actions apply to us. When anyone puts their trust in Jesus as the true king of the universe, Jesus gives them his Holy Spirit, a new kind of life. As we gather today, and as other churches are gathering today, here's God's temple. Right here, the Holy Spirit is among us. Now let's rejoice as we contemplate this for the rest of Holy Week, all that the Lord has done for us, as Sarah prayed in the beginning. And let's remember that the people sitting around you are also part of the temple of God. Let's look for ways to build each other up. And finally, if you're not yet part of Jesus' temple, he's waiting to welcome you in. Come and talk to me, or after the service, come and see the prayer team right here in the gazebo. Now, let's sing and praise the Lord, and Wes will close us in prayer.